wanted to kick off by asking a question, really. How many of you have received a prophetic promise from God, a word from God, where you just know it's an impossible thing? How many of you would just say, I've got something that's utterly impossible? There's not many of us, so we need to be prophesying far more, because when God speaks about our purpose, our calling, our destiny, it's always impossible. Because he wants to call us into something that we can't do without him. Because God in his heart and nature is relational. And he wants a relationship with us. And an aspect of walking relationally with God is his calling us into something, to possess something, to inherit something that we can't do without God. Because in his mercy, in his generosity, he wants us to be close to him. He wants us to get to know him. He wants us to learn to trust him. And we're going to be looking this morning at a story in the Bible from Numbers chapter 13, which was a story, an account, a true account of Israel about to inherit the promise, the promise of a geographical space, the promise of land that is a promise that looks absolutely impossible to them as they go and explore it and look at it. And as we read some of these verses, it might be just good to give you a background, because for some of you it might be a a brand new account. If you remember, God had promised the people that they would have their own land, that they would be a people in a rich land, they would be a self-governing people, they would be a people who could sow, a people who could harvest, a land that would be theirs. And this promise was given to Abraham And then 400 years later, the people of Israel found themselves in Egypt. And God powerfully and mightily brought them out of Egypt and set them on a journey where the end of the journey was going to be, you're going to inherit a land. You're no longer going to be slaves. You're no longer going to be ruled over by a master. You're no longer going to be those who are whipped to make more bricks with no straw and to serve the Egyptians. You're going to have your own space, your own land And it's going to be a good land. And they use that phrase, flowing with milk and honey, to say actually it's a beautiful land, it's a rich, vibrant place. And so they've been on this journey, they've come out of Egypt, and they're now on the borders of the land. And God tells Moses in in chapter 13 and verse 1, the Lord said to Moses, send some men to explore the land of Canaan, which I am giving to the Israelites. They're at the very border of inheriting this land okay? they're at the, the threshold of going in to inherit and Moses says go in God says to Moses send some people in to spy out the land and so Moses selects 12 men who are all leaders in Israel, they're all chiefs they're all uh, men who had, had responsibility over the people, for the people, and they get sent into the land to spy out. Moses sends them, go in to check out the land, go in and check out the fruit, go out and check how the fortified cities look. Are there fortified cities? Are there warriors there? What kind of battles are going to be in our future as we go into the land? So they send 12 in to spy out the land, and they're there for 40 days. And then in verse 20. 5 of um, chapter 13 
they come back to report back on what they've found in terms of their inheritance. And it says in verse 26, they came back to Moses and Aaron and the whole Israelite community at Kadesh in the desert of Paran. There they reported to them and to the whole assembly and showed them the fruit of the land. They gave Moses this account. We went into the land to which you sent us and it does flow with milk and honey. In other words, it's really, really good land. Here's its fruit. And the fruit was so big and amazing. Two people had to carry, they had to carry it between them. There's heavy fruit. But the people, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak there. Now, we'll talk a bit, little bit about Anak later on. The Amalekites live in Negev, the Hittites, the Jebusites, the Amorites live in the hill country, and the Canaanites live near the sea along the Jordan. Then Caleb silenced the people before Moses and said, We should go up and take possession of the land, for we can certainly do it. But the men who had gone up with him, that's the other ten, said, We can't attack those people. They're stronger than we are. Um, They spread among the Israelites a bad report about the land they explored. They said, The land we explore devours those living in it. In other words, the land is not flowing with milk and honey. It's actually a land that eats people. All the people we saw there are of great size. We saw the Nephilim there, the descendants of Anak from the Nephilim. We saw grasshoppers. We, are, we, were, we seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we looked to the same to them. I can actually guarantee when God gives an impossible promise and as a church we've got a whole number of prophetic words that are um, are giving us vision, giving us a sense of direction, telling us where we're heading. When God gives a prophetic vision, like take buckets of his presence into the community, a river that flows out into the community, people who are going to bring the kingdom wherever they go, promises of transformation of a whole area, you know that those are impossible promises. Promises like, if you want SE18, you can have it. Or if you want the area that you live in, you can have it. You can have the kingdom there. You can have my kingdom's justice there. You can see healing there. You can see justice there. You can see transformation there. You you can see glass ceilings broken down. You can see harmony between people groups. You can see the kingdom come. When you've got an impossible promise, that promise at the moment is surrounded by (coughs) challenges and difficulties. That's one of the natures of when God gives a promise right now... It will be surrounded by circumstances that seem to contradict the promise. So for these people, God says, I'm giving you this land. This land is yours. Now go and have a look at it. This is your inheritance. Now get your strategy for how you're going to inherit. And so they've gone in the land and they've spotted all the obstacles and all the challenges and all the difficulties. And they're very, very real difficulties. But there seems to be two totally different conclusions when they look at the circumstances. Both are looking at the same land. Both know that the land is a promise from God. Both know that God has spoken about this promise for centuries. Ten of them believe it's impossible and see the problems as bigger than God. And two of them, Caleb and Joshua, believe actually we can do it, we can take it. 
So right now, the promises that you have received from God are most likely and certainly surrounded by things that you cannot budge and you cannot move and actually feel intimidating right now. Maybe it's the promise that you know a husband or a wife is going to come to know Jesus. And right now it seems to be that promise seems a million miles away because they've got no appetite for Jesus and not even speaking about Jesus. Maybe it's a son or daughter. You think, I want them to come back to Christ. He's the, Jesus is the, the greatest person in the world. I, I've got a promise that my son and daughter is coming back to walk with Jesus. But at the moment, they seem a million miles from that. We might look at Plumstead and we say, we've got a kingdom mandate to see the transformation of this area, to see justice and health and transformation in housing and transformation in how long people live. That's one of the burdens. We're thinking, God, we want people to live here the same length of time that they live in Bexley Heath. It's not right that men in SE18 live 10 years less than men who live four miles away. The kingdom of God comes to confront that, but it looks impossible and we don't even know how to do it. And so when God gives a promise, we say, wow, God, you're saying if we want it, we can have it, but we don't know how to do it. Mm. Now, there's two ways we can go with an impossible promise. We can go Caleb and Joshua's way, which we'll explore, or we can go the ten spies way, which we'll explore. Mm. Because in all honesty, we can have a lot of sympathy with the ten spies. They've gone into the land. They've seen it's good. They've tasted the fruit. They were, they were involved in carrying it back. They don't deny that it's a good land flowing with milk and honey. But they say, but the people who live there are powerful. And the cities are fortified and very large. We even saw descendants of Anak. Anak, in verse 25, these were historically warriors. Descendants of the Nephilim who apparently were around seven to nine feet tall. I believe some people say that Goliath, that David has a victory against sometime later, was himself a descendant of the Nephilim and Anak. I don't know about you, but when I'm walk, walking into the land and I'm saying, yeah, the grapes are good, the food is good, it all looks great, and I see what I believe are descendants of Anak... I'm going to be a little intimidated. I don't want to go and fight a guy who's seven foot tall or nine foot tall. These these are real people because we can forget that that we can read it in the Bible and we can see the outcome and we can forget they were men, people just like us. Just like us. And we can somehow forget that actually if we were in the same shoes... Oh God, I wonder who I would be. (laughs) I want to be like Caleb and Joshua. And I believe there's some clues and guidance in these verses that enable us to become Caleb and Joshua kind of people. I think sometimes we have to be honest. What would we be like when we saw Jericho walled up to the sky? Mm. What would we be like if we saw Anak? What would we be like if we saw warrior people who were so much taller than us? And looked like killing machines. We might feel intimidated. I said last week, when we were treasure hunting, that one of the things we do as a church, we come to God, we ask God, who are the people you want us to bless in the high street? Who are the people you want us to go and talk about Jesus? 
Who are the people that we're to pray for and sick to be prayed for and people to be prophesied over? And we get clues from God, words of knowledge. And one of the words of knowledge I had last week was somebody wearing a T-shirt that had a skull on it. I, I thought it was a motorhead skull, but it, 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 it's a band called Motorhead. And it looked in my mind like that motif, but it was a skull. And one of the strange things about treasure hunting is you have these clues and you go out on the street and there's something the person's in front of you. And I've not really seen people wearing skull t-shirts around, but I turned a corner and this guy dressed completely in heavy metal gear with a skull t-shirt walks past me. And I know I'm meant to be speaking to him. But I feel like the Ten Spies, and he looks like Anak, and he's tall, and, and he's got big boots on. And, and I, I, I'm thinking this guy could, I, before I can do anything of imagining what God might do, I'm imagining I'm against the wall, and he's, he's angry, because, because someone's told about Jesus before, and, and I'm the one who's going to get all the 20 years of anger, because it's all coming out from just seeing, I've this whole story, and you know, I'm in an ambulance, and you know, I've got no tea. <laughs> he looked like a descendant of Anak. I'm sure he was from. And, and there is a band called Fields of the Netherlands. For those of you who are ever into Gothic music, Fields of the, they do dress in this way, and, and I knew some of them. And, but so all this thing is flashing through my head. This story, and, and before I know it, there's no courage. And I'm glad he's moving fast. And I, I kind of move behind him in a kind of obedience to God. If he comes back, I'm moving in the same direction as him. But I'm moving a lot slower than him. And he's very fast, God. He's very fast. And then I make a deal. If he comes back, I'll speak to him. And phew, he didn't come back. But before I know it, I've reacted as a ten spy kind of person. I'm overwhelmed by this person. I'm overwhelmed by what they might do and what they might say and how it might go. He's stronger than me. That's what they're saying here, but they're stronger than me. And some of these things flash through our head. And we think, but they wouldn't be interested in Jesus anyway. It, <clears throat> yeah, I'm admitting this in public. <laughs> these things flash through our head. We think, oh, they wouldn't be admitted. I, I love the day that someone told me about Jesus when I was 18. It was the best news I'd ever heard. I never heard about Jesus until I was 18. The only thing I ever heard about was there was a Gideon society came to the school and brought a Bible. And I, I, I tried to read it, didn't understand it, but that was all I'd ever heard about Jesus until I was 18 years old. I'd never heard the gospel, never heard anything. But the moment I heard, and the moment I had an encounter with him, I never regretted it. All those years, 20 odd years ago, I never regretted being told about Jesus. I never regretted being invited to church. I never invited being taught about the Holy Spirit. I never regretted that. And sometimes we can forget that. We can think, oh, but they're stronger than us, and they wouldn't be interested. Oh, yes, they're interested. They're interested. He's the hope of the nations. And so the ten come back, and they paint a picture with their words about how bad the land is. You know, they're terrified. And, they, and they, they, they encountered fear. Just like I encountered fear on Plumstead High Street. They painted a picture in their heads. And then they painted a picture in their words. And worry is imagining the future without God. What about if I'd imagined the future with God in that moment? You know, you can imagine one set of scenarios, nothing will happen, I get beaten up, we go in an ambulance, 
That's a worrying picture because there's no God in that at all. I'm not factoring in the possibility. What if, what if on that day was the day? I'm not saying God can't. God can go and get that, that guy and bring someone else along. I, I, I don't need to feel the weight and burden that that's a missed opportunity for him. God can bring someone else along. And, you know, in God's mercy, I wouldn't be surprised if in a few weeks' time I tell you another story that I saw him again. And that I'll tell you another story that I painted a picture in my head of imagining God in the middle of it. Imagine that you stop and you say, you're a clue. Do you need anything? And he gets healed. His heart gets healed. He has an encounter with Jesus. Because these guys begin to paint a word picture of a devouring land, a bad report... But they don't factor in God. They don't factor in the fact that God has promised them and God will give them victories. Amen. All they can feel at the moment is the terror and the fear. Worry is imagining your future without God. A worrying what it will look like if the money runs out, if this contract runs out, if this sickness is that. And we worry about so many, many, many things, but we don't factor in God heard somebody say a story, a guy was on jewellery duty and he felt God wanted to pray, uh, heal somebody who's in a wheelchair. And so he went up to the person and said, he said, um, Jesus can heal, Jesus wants to heal you today. And the man said, what if nothing happens? And the guy said, what if something does? What if today you're healed? And the guy was healed. So, what if? What if? And so Joshua and Caleb, they're in the same land as everybody else. You know, they don't see another land. They see exactly the same things. They see the warriors. They see the fortified cities. They see the fruit. Because faith is not denial of reality. Faith is not whistling in the dark. Faith is not pretending that this promise at the moment is surrounded by challenge or surrounded by difficulty or surrounded by impossibility. Faith can look at all the obstacles and it can look at all the difficulties, but it can come to another conclusion because faith brings God in to the whole thing. Faith is, but God said. Faith is, but God has given us a promise. Faith is... But didn't God send us with a commission because I am giving you this land? Joshua and Caleb saw a truth that was higher than their circumstances. And that's the journey for all of us of going from faith to faith and glory to glory and trust to trust. Is that whenever we're in circumstances (coughs) that contradict the promise, we look to God who can give can, has the power to do the impossible by simply speaking the word. And we see that with Abraham in Romans 4.17. That he was able to look at his body and he was able to look at his wife's body and yet he was able to come to another conclusion. God is powerful enough to do what he has said. He is powerful enough to give us Isaac. He's powerful enough to give us a child even though everything at the moment is surrounded by impossibilities. And so Caleb, it says later on, was a man with a different spirit. He had a different spirit to everybody else. He wholeheartedly followed the Lord. 
you could probably say that Christianity could be boiled down to this. It's simply a relationship with God in which we absolutely trust him. And we absolutely surrender. And we absolutely yield to him. That we know that he's good. And we know that he's faithful. And we know that he's dependable. And because we factor him in and his goodness into everything, we see things from another perspective, a higher perspective. And this is where we then find Caleb in chapter, in verse 31 saying, he says, we can certainly do it. So faith sees God, beholds God, has an encounter with God, trusts God, sees a truth that is higher than the circumstances, and then has a response of, we can certainly do it. We can certainly do it. It's the assurance of things hoped for. It's the certainty about things we don't yet see. And that's where God is taking you, is where God is taking us as a local church for a visitor, is to be those people who say, God can certainly do it. We can certainly do it. Something can happen. Confident expectation that God is going to lead us, that he delights in us. He will give it. And so Caleb is in the midst of all these people when he breaks out of the unbelieving pack and brings a, a, a different verdict on the circumstances. So trust and confidence in God is what gives you a hope mindset. If you want to overflow with hope in all of your, your circumstances with the promises that you carry from God... We must develop and must see a Caleb hope mindset. We can certainly do it. This is not impossible with God. God delights in us. God has promised us this. For Israel it was, we've had this promise for 400 years. We've been living with this promise. It's in our heritage. It's what God gave our ancestors. It's what God spoke over Abraham. It's what God spoke into into Joseph. It's what God spoke through the 12 tribes. It's been in our heritage. It's in our DNA. We're going to have a land flowing with milk and honey. We're going to have a place where we can sow and we can reap. We're going to have a place where we're going to shine as God's people amongst all the nations. That's their promise. And they believe that and they trust in that. See, when you see who he is, then we see who we are. It's actually not that complicated. I must have an encounter with God. I must see who he is. I've got to see how great he is. I've got to see how powerful he is. I've got to see how able he is. I've got to see how capable he is to do the impossible. I've got to see that he's a faithful God. That when he promises something, he doesn't do it to trick us. Or to seduce us. Or to be like a carrot on a stick with a donkey that we just follow it but never gives it. That he doesn't do it for that. He does it for relationships so that together in seeing who he is, I can see who I am. And then together I can have a cry that says we can do it. From a place of assurance and a place of hope and and a place of confidence. And that's why I don't mind telling you the journey that we have in Treasure Hunting. Because I'm on the same journey as you. Of growing from faith to faith and assurance. I love moments in one sense where it doesn't go all right. Because actually in that moment you get an opportunity to come to God and say, what was going on there God? 
that, that what I longed for was to be going after that guy and seeing it, but that's not what I saw, so I need to come to you for an encounter, to see your greatness, so that my cry can be a Caleb cry. We can certainly do it. So that next time, God, there won't be that intimidation, that holding back. The next time, God, is going to be a different outcome. The next time, God, I'm not going to yeah. be painting a picture that doesn't have you in it. I'm going to be painting a picture what might happen. Yes, come on. I've got to do it, not from beating myself up, but from a place of encountering God, seeing who he is and seeing who I am. We must have revelations of who he is. So Joshua and Caleb saw themselves as conquerors. Their very identity was this. We're God's leaders. We belong to God. In the New Testament, we could say we're God's kids. We belong to him. My identity is I'm a conqueror. I'm a man, I'm a woman who's designated for victory and overcoming. I'm the head, not the tail. Their whole identity was, surely God's going to give it. Surely we can do it. We can, we, can, we can take this land. We can inherit it. We can do it. In fact, it says later on that Joshua and Caleb said, we will devour them. You want to talk about a land that devours? Well, we'll devour them. You want to talk about us being like grasshoppers? Well, they're just bread to us. There's a a different spirit about Joshua and Caleb. The ten spies, though, saw themselves as grasshoppers. Victims. And then they say something really interesting. We seemed like grasshoppers in our own eyes and we look the same to them. Now a grasshopper in those days was a snack. Okay? It's a snack. It's the same as saying we were shrimps in our own eyes and we were a prawn cocktail in theirs. We were a crisp to them. We're a mouthful to them. But you don't actually read that the ten spies went and interviewed the, 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 the Anak warriors. Um, we're just doing a survey today in the land. I'm um, having a look at it. We're sent here to inherit it. We just want to ask you a couple of questions, seven foot nine warrior guy. We personally think we're grasshoppers. Just interested to know if you have the same opinion. And nine out of ten Anak said, yeah, you're grasshoppers in our eyes too. Okay, there was no survey. They projected what they thought about themselves and said everybody else thinks we're that too. Yes. So, I walk into the high street, I'm irrelevant to you, I have no good news to share with you, and you believe the same, so I won't chase you. Because I'm projecting onto them their conclusions about me. The, The problem is, it's not the society around us, it's the conclusions that the believers have come to. We're irrelevant, we're outdated, and we're outmoded, and less people are going to church than ever before. And that's what you think too? Well, no, we've never even asked them. Yes. We just walk into the office and think, no one will be interested in Jesus, no one's interested in Jesus, I'm weak and feeble, you think that too. No one in my family's interested, no one in the community's interested. But that's not the way Joshua and Caleb saw it. They said, actually, you think we're a snack? You're a snack. You're bread to us. In that sense, in a warrior taking the land kind of sense. In this sense, we're ambassadors of good news. We've got amazing good news to tell you. And we've found it to be amazing good news. And we know you want it. We know you want it. We know you're hungry for it. 
We know that no one's ever come back after meeting Jesus and said, oh, you shouldn't have told me about him. They always say, why didn't anybody tell me about him before? They never come back and say, oh, you've ruined my life. I just met the King of Glory and he's loving me and he's given me this new identity as a son. I've got this amazing inheritance and I get to call God Abba. Oh, I wish you would not told me about all this amazing <laughs> adventure that I get to do, the greater works, and I get to go on an adventure that's purposely designed for me to bring him glory. No one ever says that. They say, thank you so much for sharing good news to me. This is good news. So we want to have the mindset of Joshua and Caleb. We're not going to project onto the community and say, you think we're irrelevant. We're not going to project onto the people in our lives and think that husband or wife would never be interested in Jesus. Actually, they're really hungry to know him. Or that son or that daughter or that workplace or those circumstances. Rather, we're to say, this is the most relevant news in the whole world. The greatest need for the believer is to see themselves, for me to see myself, for you to see yourself from heaven's perspective and to know who you are, to know your identity. To know the nature of the one who actually promised. To know how good he is and how powerful he is. And how able he is to do everything he has promised to do. It starts by imagining in our heads, we can do it. It starts by imagining what SC18, what Thamesmead, what these different locations can be like. What your family could be like. What your workplace could be like. What this circumstance could be like when God fulfills the promises he has for you as those things begin to unfold. What nations could look like as the kingdom of heaven comes. It starts by saying, I know who I am. I know what you've promised. I'm going to believe what you've said about me. I'm going to believe what you've said about the people in my life. I'm going to believe what you've said about my circumstances. I'm going to believe what you say about yourself, God, that you're a good, good father. And I'm loved by you. Until the cry in our heart comes into agreement with God. We can do it, God. We can do it. Not me doing it for you. Not me running ahead of you. But us together. Father and son. Father and daughter. Together with you. Going on amazing adventures. Empowered by the Holy Spirit to invade the impossible. Jesus said we'd do greater works. Yeah, the greater works, God. We could do that together. We can do it, God. We've got good news. We're not going to project onto society the idea that Jesus is irrelevant, that the church is irrelevant. We're going to have the right perspective. The church is the hope of the world. In the church are the answers to society. In the church are the answers to life. I'm not negating the fact that there's common grace on, on medical science. There's common grace on politics, there's common grace on the arts, these things do enrich society, they're great and wonderful things. But nobody in the whole world apart from the Christian and the church has the answer to the most fundamental issue of the person's soul. I'm an orphan and I'm on my own and one day I'm going to die and I'm really, really scared. Only Christ can come in and speak to the deep issues of a human heart. The first order questions. Why am I here? What's life all about? Am I completely alone? Only God can do that. And he's 
given this wonderful good news to the church, that we might be ambassadors of good news, that we might bring it to people and say, I know one who is the solution to the hopelessness of your heart because the God of all hope has touched my life and I'm now overflowing with hope. I know one whose love can cast out the debilitating fear that you have of the future and the fear that you have of today. His love can cast out that fear. I know the one who can calm the storms of peacelessness because he's the God of all peace and he can come into your heart and he can give you a peace that transcends all understanding. I know the boredom that you feel and the monotony of life goes on and on and on and there's a one who'll invite you into a world where he'll do more than you can ask or imagine. I know you're craving to be loved just as you are. And to know somebody who knows you, knows everything about you, knows the skeletons in your closet, and yet loves you just the same. And his love is deeper and higher and wider and immeasurably. You could not explore it for eternity. We'll still be gazing and understanding his love. will never come to an end. He's the immutable, unchangeable, good God who flung stars into space and yet knows us by name. And he knew you before the foundation of the earth and he absolutely loves you and delights in you and wants you. And wants to draw you into the most wonderful and beautiful relationship there could possibly be with a father who's so tender and so good and so patient and so kind and so loving that he dealt with the most fundamental issue in the universe. My rebellion, your rebellion, my sin, your sin. All the things that held us back from the glory. Jesus dealt with the whole thing and ripped the curtain of the temple so that men and women can now live in the glory. In the Holy of Holies, not being something out there, but become something inside here. The Holy of Holies moves from the temple and becomes the very core of who we are. This is the good news that we have. To prize and to treasure God and to be loved with such a beautiful love. Mm. And then to tell people, in love, let me tell you about the one I met. To not project upon them, you don't think he's relevant. Sometimes we're on the road so long and we forget the agony of what it felt like to be without Jesus. Amen. Amen. I remember as a seven-year-old thinking, everybody lived to a hundred. I've got 93 years left. (laughs) As an 11 year old, I thought about becoming a film star, but then I said to myself, I can't, because then when I'm older, I'll look back on my youth and I'll be in despair. Just the tyranny of death. As it, as it looks men and women in the face and say everything you do is meaningless because it all ends in nothing. And Jesus says, no, the whole thing is meaningful because eternal life, life from above, a different quality of life comes to the human heart now and there's continuity and it just goes yeah. on and on and on. Right. But it gets from glory to glory to glory to glory. Yeah. And so the good news of the gospel is On the outside, we might be wasting away, but inside there's this expansive, glorious world that's growing and growing and growing and growing. Yeah. That's what Jesus does. He will back up our response in obedience to him. And we see later on, they wander in the desert another 40 years because of the rebellion of unbelief. And later on in Joshua, we see Caleb 
now a very old man, bright-eyed, he wants the last portion of land, probably the piece of land where everybody now has gone, who was running away from Israel, all the biggest, toughest, meaning, mean, mean warriors are there. And Caleb, right eye, says, that's my inheritance, I'm having that. He's not changed a bit. And they inherit the land. God will back up your obedience in response to his promises. God will back up your moments of risk and faith where you say, I can do it. Let me pray for you. Jesus Christ, we love you. We thank you that you're such good news. You know, even now God's drawing some of your hearts and just saying, come home, come home, I've missed you. Come, I want to spend some time with you. Come together, let's be chatting together, let's be talking together. We love you so much. We thank you that we're the carriers of hope to the world. We thank you, Jesus, that you are wonderful news. You're so beautiful. You're so good. Thank you for coming. Thank you for dying in our place. Thank you for dying for us and as us. Thank you for removing our shame and our guilt. Thank you for washing us clean. Thank you for making a way to come and see the Father and to be loved. We just love you, Father. Thank you. Thank you so much for so loving the world that you gave Jesus. We, we want to say, Father, we love you. Jesus, thank you for choosing us. Thank you for doing everything necessary for us to be chosen. And we just say to you in response, Jesus, we choose you back. We love you. We want you to know us and we want to know you. We want to walk deeply with you. We just hear you beckoning us into adventures. Thank you, Jesus. We bless you. Holy Spirit, we bless you. Thank you that you came, Holy Spirit. Thank you that Jesus says it's better that I go to be with the Father than the Spirit can come, the friend can come. Thank you, Holy Spirit, you are God. Thank you you've not just left us with a philosophy or a really, really good example, but you come to us as an empowering person to enable us to live the life. Thank you, we've got even more than that sense that Caleb and Joshua had. Yeah, we thank you that later on you say to Joshua, every place you put your feet, that's yours. Mm. Help us to be courageous, God. Help us to say we can do it. Help us to be those who put our feet into the promises, to open our mouths, to take action, to take risks, to take faith. Thank you you're looking for partners. You're not going to do it all for us, but you'll do it with us as we walk with you. Help us to open our mouths like that young man did in the jury duty. I know one who can heal you. Let it come out of our mouths, God. Thank you. You want to back up those cones for moments of faith. Amen. Amen.